This morning, uh, as I bring the message to you, uh, I frankly admit that there's going to be a fair amount of repetition. We have been uh, covering all kinds of things in the last couple of months that have had to do with the Holy Spirit. And today I want to bring a summation of all of that and leave you with some thoughts uh, relative to why should we seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit and what does that mean? And what is the difference in living an ordinary Christian life and living a Spirit-filled Christian life? You know, Watchman Nee wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life, in which he postulated that the normal Christian life was the Spirit-filled life. And anything else was substandard. It was beneath what God has for us. And yet, most believers do not live a Spirit-filled Christian life. They live a life that, if we were to take the average, we might call ordinary And how does being filled with the Holy Spirit differ from being justified and sanctified? Now, I touched on some of these last week and also in weeks prior, and I took the time to print out or incorporate into the outline uh, Scripture passages from the New American Standard Bible. I'm not going to go over every one of those and try to expound them. Uh, I have placed them there for your benefit. I hope you take these home with you and reflect on them through the week. And I hope you have opportunity in your small groups to discuss them and uh, consider these uh, different points. So I've highlighted the uh, points that uh, pertain uh, to to the topic, and um, you can look them up on your own. But what is the difference between justification and sanctification? And I don't know why my word processor insisted that it close the parentheses at the end of the compound term because I put it after positional and experiential, but it moved it uh, over somehow or another. So My intention was justification and sanctification, both positional and experiential. And justification means to be absolved from all sin and found blameless in the sight of God. Uh, I certainly don't want you to raise your hands. Although we all should, but uh, there may be some people living under uh, disillusionment. um, That all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a sinner. And if we were to stand before God at the bar of justice and judgment and attempt to answer for our lives, none of us would pass the test. God does not grade on the curve. And when we compare ourselves with ourselves, you might say, well, my goodness, I'm not like that person. I'm not that bad. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, If you're not like Jesus, you fail. 
Uh, he is the only one worthy of comparison. And I don't think any of us measure up to that. And yet God has so designed the atonement, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, that justification through Jesus Christ and his atoning blood leaves us without any judgment of sin. We are freed from the judgment of sin. The penalty has been paid. Uh, the decrees that were uh, labeled against us and which we have committed were nailed to his cross according to Colossians uh, chapters 1 and 2. They were nailed to the cross. He put He defeated them there and put the enemy to open shame and released us from all blame. Isn't it wonderful to know that one day we will stand in God's presence as if we had never sinned? In fact, most children learn that as a a kind of a way to remember justification, just as if I'd never sinned. And that's exactly how we will stand before God, just as if we had never sinned. Praise God for that truth and that reality, that that we do not have to be ashamed in His presence. Now, sanctification, on the other hand, has an initial part and an ongoing part. There are always two components to sanctification. One is to be set apart. Something that now belongs to God. It's not ours. It's His. It belongs to Him. And according to the Scriptures... We have been set apart unto God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified in that sense of being set apart at the moment of our conversion. However, there is also an experiential component to sanctification that has to do with practical day-to-day holiness. It has to do with living a godly life and uh, living in emulating the character and the qualities of Jesus Christ within our lives. Now, that's a process, and it begins in our lost condition and begins to move us forward by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and our Lord Jesus Christ to day by day transform us into someone who looks more and more like Him. The Scripture says, for example, in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, the transformation of our mind is a process. We do not naturally think the way God thinks. 
But as we expose ourselves to his word and as we listen to the Holy Spirit inside of us, communing with us, prompting us, convicting us, guiding us, directing us, then we day by day begin to think more like God thinks and less like the world and our behavior begins to look more like Jesus and less like our old sinful self. So justification has to do with our judgment before God relative to sin. Sanctification has to do with our ownership by God by way of the devotion of our lives and also our daily walk with Him that produces in us the character of Christ. Now if you look on the back side, I have a couple more things that I want to highlight. The Christian and Missionary Alliance Statement of Faith, which you can find the whole statement very simply, if you put in your uh, search, uh, in your browser, the search term, C&M-A, Statement of Faith. If you just type that in, you will land on the Statement of Faith. Um, at least I did one time. The next time I landed somewhere else, but I had a, a drop-down menu that, that took me there. But I have copied three of the statements out of that that have to do with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. And the first one relative to Jesus uh, tells us right in the middle there that I've highlighted, all who believe in him are justified on the ground of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scripture. He's now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. And he will come again to establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. Now, one of the things that I want to highlight here, because many people get this confused, and there is a term called the second blessing. They use that term with reference to the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit as if it were something in addition to Christ. I want to correct that notion. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We have been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Everything we ever receive as a believer, we receive because of Jesus Christ. And when we receive Him, we receive the potential for everything He offers. Years ago, I heard an illustration. I've shared it with some of you in times past. And that is, to receive Jesus Christ is like receiving a treasure chest. And in that chest are all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. Everything God has to give us is in that chest. And it's in Jesus. And when He brings that to us, 
we have the whole chest and all of its contents. But you know, some people never get around to opening it. They never get around to exploring what's inside of it. Uh, One of my professors said it was like buying, at that time, Six Flags Over Georgia was a brand new um, event, uh, theme park for people to go to. He says it's like buying a ticket to Six Flags Over Georgia and taking your camp stool, and just as soon as you go through the turnstile, you open your camp stool and you sit there all day. You can legitimately say, I've been to Six Flags. But you didn't see anything. You didn't do anything. You didn't ride anything. You had no experiences. You just kind of moved inside the door and parked. Whether it's the treasure chest or the ticket to Six Flags that kind of trips the switch in your brain, the reality is, and this is the ordinary Christian life, so many believers trust Christ as their Savior from sin, and they put their hope and confidence in Him, and then they never bother to explore what He has purchased for them on the cross. And it's not a second blessing to receive the Holy Spirit. It's just more of Jesus, who is mediated to us, by the Holy Spirit. And so, another part of the statement of faith says, the Holy Spirit is a divine person sent to indwell, guide, teach, and empower the believer and convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit is given to us to indwell, to guide, to teach, and to empower. Do you know, there's two ways to read your Bible. One way is to simply open it and read it like the newspaper. Just discovering facts and learning verses and kind of seeing what's there. That's not going to do you a whole lot of good. A lot of people read the Bible that way that are not even believers. In fact, atheists read the Bible like that in order to argue successfully against Christians. It doesn't do them any good. But the other way to read the Scripture is to come before God and to invite Him to teach you, to humbly come into His presence and and say, in essence, Father, by Your Spirit, who inspired this book, explain it to me. Teach me what You mean by what You say. You will be amazed if you give yourself to the Holy Spirit as your teacher. You will be amazed at what He connects for you how He puts the dots together, how He makes sense out of the Word. The Scripture says the natural man does not receive or understand the things of God for they're spiritually discerned. And without the Holy Spirit, you're just reading another book. 
But with the Holy Spirit, who is the divine author, he will teach you and guide you. So I invite you, when I finish this summary today, if you have questions, get your Bible out, look these verses up, and ask God to teach you. I do not expect you to just take everything I say at face value. I have a, a divine mandate and a great responsibility to speak truth to you. Teachers will be held to a double uh, requirement. They're a higher standard. Yes, they are. And I'm very much aware of that. But even so, I may be wrong. I invite you to be a student of the Scripture and to study with the Holy Spirit what God wants to tell you. That's a part of His ministry to us. And to guide us and to direct us and to empower us. And that's where letter C comes in. It is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified holy being separated from sin and the world and fully dedicated to the will of God, thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. So I want to move to the explanation of these by understanding the difference between the initial indwelling versus the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. In his initial work, remember that the scripture says there is none righteous, not one. There's none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Every single one has turned aside to his own way, uh, as Isaiah says. There's no one of their own accord that seeks to know the Lord. That may come as a surprise to you because you may recall having a hunger for God and wanting to know more about him. But I want you to know this morning that you had that hunger because the Holy Spirit planted it in your heart. He is the one that gave you a yearning to know God. He's the one that began to open your eyes. He is the one who convicts us and convinces us of our need for a Savior. And the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's through the, the scripture or through the word of God that it begins to make sense when it's coupled with the Holy Spirit bringing conviction. He wants us to understand. Secondly, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Now, some people would argue about how to diagram that sentence. Uh, is it um, we're not saved of ourselves or we don't have faith of ourselves? I personally think we don't have faith of ourselves. That is the gift of God. 
Once our eyes are open and our hearts are softened and we see the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit enables us to believe. He brings us that capacity. Secondly, God uses the Holy Spirit to cause our new birth in Jesus Christ. We are born again to a living hope by the Spirit of God. He is the one that causes us to be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he spoke of the Holy Spirit. He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So also is the Spirit of God blowing upon us. And so he likened the new birth to the movement of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us the moment of salvation and new birth. It's the Holy Spirit, when coupled with faith, causes us to be born again and brings us alive in Jesus Christ. Now, we covered this just a week or so ago, but I think it's helpful to put it all together and to see that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance in Christ. You know, many people today don't understand the word earnest. But uh, if you've purchased a home, you know what earnest is. Earnest money is the, the money you put, the cash you put on the table that says, I'm going to buy this house, I'm going to sign the contract, here's $5,000 or $2,000 or whatever it takes to bind the contract which says, I'm going to keep my word. And that's the actual word in Ephesians 1.14. But pledge is a perfectly adequate word that God has made a promise. And he has put on deposit in our lives the Holy Spirit, who guarantees us that we will see him in eternity In the forgiveness of our sin, He welcomes us into His family. The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of our salvation. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes baptism in and filling of Him to the full. There should be a word there. And it wasn't the word processor that did this. Uh, potential or possibility. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives us the possibility, the potential of being filled just like Jesus. You've heard me quote it many times, and it still surprises us that Jesus says to his disciples in John regarding the Holy Spirit, the works that I have done shall you do also, and greater works than these, because I'm going to my Father, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He has been with you, and He shall be in you. But we were told, they were told, not to attempt ministry until they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you remember last week I pointed out to you in John 
Uh, first of all, John promises that Jesus will baptize us in the Spirit, but let's just skip ahead to number three for a moment. John twenty twenty two verses Acts one five and two uh, one to four. Jesus comes to that upper room on the day of the resurrection and breathes on them and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." That's analogous to our new birth. But then he still says. Wait for the promise of the Father to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so when he ascends, he urges his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is not enough to be indwelt and born again. We need him to fill us to the full and clothe us with his presence. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so John promised that Jesus is the one that would baptize us in the Holy Spirit. What happens when people get baptized up here? Those that have assisted me with baptism know that I'm, I'm very diligent to get them all under the water. <laughs> I want them covered. <laughs> Baptize means to immerse regardless of what some denominations teach. It means to immerse. We need to be immersed in the Spirit. And we need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't want them filled with the baptistry water. That would not be good. But they need to be immersed by the Spirit, just as they are by the waters of baptism. And so... On the day of Pentecost, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit after being saved. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria, and the Samaritans believe in Jesus through his evangelistic preaching. And what happens? Peter and John go down because they heard that revival had broke out in Samaria but they had not received the power of the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John go down and begin to lay hands on them and pray for them, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's such a powerful thing that Simon the uh, magician wants to pay for this power. And Peter chews him out. You know, and challenges even his very salvation that he wants to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. There was something distinctive that happened to the Samaritans that was obviously the power of God upon them. When's the last time someone recognized the power of God upon us? When has, have they seen that and said, wow, can I get that for myself? Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, Paul goes to Ephesus. He finds a bunch of disciples there. They're studying the scriptures. Very interesting. He says, but he notices something's missing. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I want you to notice that. Paul discerned something missing in their lives. 
But he thought they were Christians because of the way they were talking. Are you with me? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, well, what were you baptized at? What happened here to you? And they didn't even understand the gospel. But Paul assumed they were believers who were incomplete in their commitment. So when you're an ordinary Christian, what do you look like? An unbeliever. A dedicated unbeliever. A religious unbeliever. But an unbeliever. And so Paul shared with them the gospel and they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then he laid hands on them and they received the outpouring, filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And signs and wonders accompanied that moment and it was obvious that they had been transformed. Have you had an experience with the living God such that the people around you recognize it is obvious that you've been transformed. And I want to, I want to tell you something. You you can be an ordinary Christian. You can walk uh, in the knowledge that you have and, and understand. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Sometimes we need to be filled afresh because we leak. And the Holy Spirit is draining out of us in terms of His power and presence. He doesn't leave us. But His power drains out. And we need to come back and say, Oh God, fill me afresh with Your Spirit. Baptize me in Your Spirit. Why? Why should we seek to be filled with the Spirit? Why not just live an ordinary Christian life? Well, uh, U.S. American normal Christian life. Why not just do that? Well, first of all, it's disobedient. Jesus set an example for us when he was baptized in the Jordan. Remember the symbolic relationship in the Old Testament? And what happened? A dove from heaven came down as the Holy Spirit and landed upon him because that was the moment of filling. And that was the beginning of his ministry. Now, Jesus had not sinned and was indwelt and born of the Spirit before that moment, but he did not begin his public ministry until he was baptized in the Spirit. Very interesting. Secondly, his filling power frees us from the law of sin and death and the law of the old covenant, giving us freedom in Christ. Friends, we are meant to be free in Jesus Christ. And if you're not filled with the Spirit of God, you're not free. You're struggling. You're fighting sin. You're battling the things that are holding you back from all the fullness of God. We cannot live godly and eternally profitable lives apart from His filling. 
You know the difference between the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the Spirit? The deeds of the flesh are wood, hay, and stubble. They're consumed at the judgment seat of Christ. Jude speaks of those who were saved so as by fire. And all that's left is an empty life. Yes, they're saved, but they're not. They didn't make much difference here. But if we are filled with the Spirit of God, then we are investing in gold and silver and precious stones. And our lives are making a difference for eternity in people. We cannot accomplish the work God desires to do through us apart from His baptism and power. And we cannot truly enjoy our salvation and our relationship with God apart from the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the second fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Love is the first, joy is the second. Do you want to have joy? Real joy, wonderful joy? You need the filling of the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit. One of the toughest things you can endeavor to do is to live the Christian life in your own strength. That will wear you out. You'll spend most of your time failing, feeling like a failure, asking forgiveness, trying to stay on good terms with God. Life will be difficult for you. But if you are filled with the Spirit of God and you have His abiding presence, His joy will be your experience. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray that as we meditate upon this, it would not just be for us intellectual enlightenment, I pray that every one of us in this room would hunger and thirst and crave the Holy Spirit. That we would long to be filled with Him. To be baptized in His power. And that this congregation would make a difference in this community. Not because of plans and programs and and ideas that we have birthed, but because your Spirit has come upon us, and people know the difference, that we might love the way you love, have the joy that you promised, experience all the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to the glory of Jesus Christ, who has purchased it for us, through His blood atonement on the cross. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.